Chapter Ten of the Stillwater Tragedy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Stillwater Tragedy by Thomas Bailey Aldrich. Chapter Ten. Three years glided by with Richard Shackford as swiftly as those periods of time which are imagined to elapse between the acts of a play. They were eventless, untroubled years and have no history. Nevertheless, certain changes had taken place. Little by little Mr. Slocum had relinquished the supervision of the workshops to Richard. Until now the affairs of the yard rested chiefly on his shoulders. It was like a dream to him when he looked directly back to his humble beginning, though as he reflected upon it, and retraced his progress step by step, he saw there was nothing illogical or astonishing in his good fortune. He had won it by downright hard work, and the faithful exercise of a sufficing talent." In his relations with Margaret, Richard's attitude had undergone no appreciable change. Her chance visits to the studio through the week and those pleasant, half-idle Saturday afternoons had become to both Richard and Margaret a matter of course, like the sunlight or the air they breathed. To Richard, Margaret Slocum at nineteen was simply a charming, frank girl, a type of gracious young womanhood. He was conscious of her influence. He was very fond of Margaret but she had not yet taken on for him that magic individuality which makes a woman the one woman in the world to her lover. Though Richard had scant experience in such matters, he was not wrong in accepting Margaret as the type of a class of New England girls which, fortunately for New England, is not a small class. These young women, for the most part, lead quiet and restricted lives so far as the actualities are concerned, but very deep and full lives in the world of books and imagination, to which they make early escapes. They have the high instincts that come of good blood, the physique that naturally fits fine manners, and when chance takes one of these maidens from her island country home, or from some sleepy town on the seaboard, and sets her amid the complications of city existence, she is an unabashed and unassuming lady. If in Paris she differs from the Parisiennes only in the greater delicacy of her lithe beauty, her innocence which is not ignorance, and her French pronunciation. If in London, she differs from English girls only in the matter of rosy cheeks and the rising inflection. Should none of these fortunate transplantings befall her, she always merits them by adorning with grace and industry and intelligence the narrower sphere to which destiny has assigned her. Destiny had assigned Margaret Slocum to a very narrow sphere. It had shut her up in an obscure New England manufacturing village, with no society, strictly speaking, and no outlets whatever to large experiences. To her father's affection, Richard's friendship, and her household duties, she was forced to look for her happiness. If life held wider possibilities for her, she had not dreamed of them. She looked up to Richard with respect, perhaps with a dash of sentiment in the respect. There was something at once gentle and virile in his character which she admired and leaned upon. In his presence, the small housekeeping troubles always slipped from her, but her heart, to use a pretty French phrase, had not consciously spoken. Possibly it had murmured a little, incoherently, to itself, but it had not spoken out aloud, as perhaps it would have done long ago if an impediment had been placed in the way of their intimacy. With all her subtler intuitions, Margaret was as far as Richard from suspecting the strength and direction of the current with which they were drifting." Freedom, habit, and the nature of their environment conspired to prolong this mutual lack of perception. The hour had sounded, however, when these two were to see each other in a different light. One Monday morning in March, at the close of the three years in question, 
as Richard mounted the outside staircase leading to his studio in the extension, the servant-maid beckoned to him from the kitchen window. Margaret had failed to come to the studio the previous Saturday afternoon. Richard had worked at cross-purposes, and returned to his boarding-house vaguely dissatisfied, as always happened to him on those rare occasions when she missed the appointment, but he had thought little of the circumstance. Nor had he been disturbed on Sunday at seeing the Slocum pew vacant during both services. The heavy snowstorm which had begun the night before accounted for at least Margaret's absence. "'Mr. Slocum told me to tell you that he wouldn't be in the yard today,' said the girl. "'Miss Margaret is very ill.' "'Ill?' Richard repeated, and the smile with which he had leaned over the rail towards the window went out instantly on his lip. "'Dr. Weld was with her until five o'clock this morning,' said the girl, fingering the corner of her apron. "'She's that low.' "'What is the matter?' "'It's a fever.' "'What kind of fever?' "'I don't mind me what the doctor called it. He thinks it comes from something wrong with the drains.' "'He didn't say typhoid.' "'Yes, that's the name of it.' Richard ascended the stairs with a slow step, and a moment afterwards stood stupidly in the middle of the workshop. "'Margaret is going to die,' he said to himself, giving voice to the dark foreboding that had instantly seized upon him. And in a swift vision he saw the end of all that simple, fortunate existence which he had lived without once reflecting it could ever end. He mechanically picked up a tool from the table and laid it down again. Then he seated himself on the low bench between the windows. It was Margaret's favorite place. It was not four days since she sat there reading to him. Already it appeared long ago, years and years ago. He could hardly remember when he did not have this heavy weight on his heart. His life of yesterday abruptly presented itself to him as a reminiscence. He saw now how happy that life had been, and how lightly he had accepted it. It took to itself all that precious quality of things irrevocably lost. The clamor of the bell in the South Church striking noon, and the shrilling of the steam whistle, softened by the thick falling snow, roused Richard from his abstraction. He was surprised that it was noon. He rose from the bench and went home through the storm, scarcely heeding the sleet that slapped in his face like whiplashes. Margaret was going to die. For four or five weeks the world was nearly a blank to Richard Shackford. The insidious fever that came and went, bringing alternate despair and hope to the watchers in the hushed room, was in his veins also. He passed the days between his lonely lodgings in Lime Street and the studio, doing nothing, restless and apathetic by turns, but with always a poignant sense of anxiety. He ceased to take any distinct measurement of time, further than to note that an interval of months seemed to separate Monday from Monday. Meanwhile, if new patterns had been required by the men, the work in the carving departments would have come to a deadlock. At length the shadow lifted, and there fell a day of soft May weather when Margaret, muffled in shawls and as white as death, was seated once more in her accustomed corner by the west window. She had insisted on being brought there the first practicable moment. Nowhere else in the house was such sunshine, and Mr. Slocum himself had brought her in his arms. She leaned back against the pillows, smiling faintly. Her fingers lay locked on her lap, and the sunlight showed through the narrow, transparent palace. It was as if her hands were full of blush-roses. Richard breathed again, but not with so free a heart as before. What if she had died? He felt an immense pity for himself when he thought of that, and he thought of it continually as the days wore on. 
either a great alteration had wrought itself in margaret or richard beheld her through a clearer medium during the weeks of convalescence that followed was this the slight sharp-faced girl he used to know the eyes and the hair were the same but the smile was deeper and the pliant figure had lost its extreme slimness without a sacrifice to its delicacy the spring air was filling her veins with abundant health and mantling her cheeks with a richer duskiness than they had ever worn margaret was positively handsome her beauty had come all in a single morning like the crocuses this beauty began to awe richard it had the effect of seeming to remove her further and further from him he grew moody and restless when they were together and was wretched alone his constraint did not escape margaret she watched him and wondered at his inexplicable depression when every one in the household was rejoicing in her recovery by and by this depression wounded her but she was too spirited to show the hurt she always brought a book with her now in her visits to the studio it was less awkward to read than to sit silent and unspoken to over a piece of needlework how very odd you are said margaret one afternoon closing the volume which she had held mutely for several minutes waiting for richard to grasp the fact that she was reading aloud i odd protested richard breaking with a jerk from one of his long reveries in what way as if i could explain when you put the quotation suddenly like that i didn't intend to be abrupt i was curious to know and then the charge itself was a trifle unexpected if you will look at it but never mind he added with a smile think it over and tell me to-morrow no i will tell you now since you are willing to wait i wasn't really willing to wait but i knew if i didn't pretend to be i should never get it out of you very well then your duplicity is successful richard i was puzzled where to begin with your oddities begin at the beginning no i will take the nearest when a young lady is affable enough to read aloud to you the least you can do is to listen to her that is a deference you owe the author when it happens to be hawthorne to say nothing of the young lady but i have been listening margaret every word where did i leave off it was where where the and richard knitted his brows in the vain effort to remember where the young daguerreotypist what's his name took up his residence in the house of seven gables no sir you stand convicted it was ten pages further on the last words were and margaret read from the book good-night cousin said phoebe strangely affected by hepsheba's manner if you begin to love me i am glad there sir what do you say to that richard did not say anything but he gave a guilty start and shot a rapid glance at margaret coolly enjoying her triumph in the next place she continued soberly after a pause i think it very odd in you not to reply to me oh not now for of course you are without a word of justification but at other times frequently when i speak to you you look at me so making a vacant little face and then suddenly disappear i don't mean bodily but mentally i am no great talker at best said richard with a helpless air i seldom speak unless i have something to say but other people do i for instance oh you margaret that is different when you talk i don't much mind what you are talking about i like a neat delicate compliment like that what a perverse girl you are to-day cried richard you won't understand me i mean that your words and your voice are so pleasant they make anything interesting whether it's important or not 
"'If no one were to speak until he had something important to communicate,' observed Margaret, "'conversation in this world would come to a general stop.' Then she added, with a little ironical smile, "'Even you, Richard, wouldn't be talking all the time.' Formerly Margaret's little sarcasms, even when they struck him point-blank, used to amuse Richard, but now he winced at being merely grazed. Margaret went on, "'But it's not a bit necessary to be circular or instructive with me. I am interested in trivial matters, in the weather, in my spring hat, in what you are going to do next, and the like. One must occupy oneself with something. But you, Richard, nowadays you seem interested in nothing, and have nothing whatever to say.' Poor Richard! He had a great deal to say, but he did not know how, nor if it were wise to breathe it. Just three little words, murmured or whispered, and the whole conditions would be changed. With those fateful words uttered, what would be Margaret's probable attitude, and what Mr. Slocum's? Though the line which formerly drew itself between employer and employee had grown faint with time, it still existed in Richard's mind, and now came to the surface with great distinctness, like a word written in sympathetic ink. If he spoke, and Margaret was startled or offended, then there was an end to their free, unembarrassed intercourse, perhaps an end to all intercourse. By keeping his secret in his breast, he at least secured the present. But that was to risk everything. Any day somebody might come and carry Margaret off under his very eyes. As he reflected on this, the shadow of John Dana, the son of the rich iron manufacturer, etched itself sharply upon Richard's imagination. Within the week, young Dana had declared in the presence of Richard that Margaret Slocum was an awfully nice little thing, and the Othello in Richard's blood had been set seething. Then his thought glanced from John Dana to Mr. Pinkham and the Reverend Arthur Langley, both of whom were assiduous visitors at the house. The former had lately taken to accompanying Margaret on the piano with his dismal little flute, and the latter was perpetually making a moth of himself about her class at Sunday school. Richard stood with the edge of his chisel resting idly upon the plaster mold in front of him, pondering these things. Presently he heard Margaret's voice, as if somewhere in the distance, saying, "'I have not finished yet, Richard.' "'Go on,' said Richard, falling to work again with a kind of galvanic action. "'Go on, please.' "'I have a serious grievance. Frankly, I am hurt by your preoccupation and indifference, your want of openness or cordiality.' I don't know how to name it. You are the only person who seems to be unaware that I escaped a great danger a month ago. I am obliged to remember all the agreeable hours I have spent in the studio, to keep off the impression that during my illness you got used to not seeing me, and that now my presence somehow obstructs your work and annoys you. Richard threw his chisel on the bench, and crossed over to the window where Margaret was. "'You are as wrong as can be,' he said, looking down on her half-lifted face, from which a quick wave of color was subsiding, for the abruptness of Richard's movement had startled her. "'I am glad if I am wrong. It is nearly an unforgivable thing to be as wide of the mark as you are. Oh, Margaret, if you had died that time—' "'You would have been very sorry?' "'Sorry? No. That doesn't express it. One outlives mere sorrow. If anything had happened to you, I should never have got over it. You don't know what those five weeks were to me. It was a kind of death to come to this room day after day and not find you. Margaret rested her eyes thoughtfully on the space occupied by Richard, rather than on Richard himself, 
seeming to look through and beyond him, as if he were incorporeal. "'You missed me like that?' she said slowly. "'I missed you like that.' Margaret meditated a moment. "'In the first days of my illness, I wondered if you didn't miss me a little. Afterwards everything was confused in my mind. When I tried to think, I seemed to be somebody else. I seemed to be you, waiting for me here in the studio. Wasn't that singular?' But when I recovered and returned to my old place, I began to suspect I had been bearing your anxiety, that I had been distressed by the absence to which you had grown accustomed. I never got used to it, Margaret. It became more and more unendurable. This workshop was full of, of your absence. There wasn't a sketch or a cast or an object in the room that didn't remind me of you, and seemed to mock at me for having let the most precious moments of my life slip away unheeded. That bit of geranium in the glass yonder seemed to say with its dying breath, You have cared for neither of us, as you ought to have cared. My scent and her goodness have been all one to you, things to take or to leave. It was for no merit of yours that she was always planning something to make life smoother and brighter for you. What had you done to deserve it? How unselfish and generous and good she had been to you for years and years! What would have become of you without her? She left me here on purpose." It's the geranium leaf that is speaking all the while, Margaret. To say this to you, and to tell you that she was not half appreciated, but now you have lost her. As she leaned forward listening, with her lips slightly parted, Margaret gave an unconscious little approbative nod of the head. Richard's fanciful accusation of himself caused her a singular thrill of pleasure. He had never before spoken to her in just this fashion. The subterfuge which his tenderness had employed the little detour it had made in order to get at her, was a novel species of flattery. She recognized the ring of a distinctly new note in his voice, but strangely enough, the note lost its unfamiliarity in an instant. Margaret recognized that fact also, and as she swiftly speculated upon the phenomenon, her pulse went one or two strokes faster. "'Oh, you poor boy!' she said, looking up with a laugh, and a flush so interfused that they seemed one. That geranium took a great deal upon itself. It went quite beyond its instructions, which were simply to remind you of me now and then. One day, while you were out, the day before I was taken ill, I placed the flowers on the desk there, perhaps with a kind of premonition that I was going away from you for a time. What if you had never come back? I wouldn't think of that if I were you, said Margaret softly. But it haunts me, that thought. Sometimes of a morning, after I unlock the workshop door, I stand hesitating, with my hand on the latch, as one might hesitate a few seconds before stepping into a tomb. There were days last month, Margaret, when this chamber did appear to me like a tomb. All that was happy in my past seemed to lie buried here. It was something visible and tangible. I used to steal in and look upon it. Oh, Richard! If you only knew what a life I led as a boy in my cousin's house— and what a doleful existence for years afterwards, until I found you. Perhaps you would understand my despair when I saw everything suddenly slipping away from me. Margaret, the day your father brought you in here, I had all I could do not to kneel down at your feet. Richard stopped short. I didn't mean to tell you that, he said, turning towards the work-table. Then he checked himself, and came and stood in front of her again. He had gone too far not to go further. While you were ill, I made a great discovery. What was that, Richard? I discovered that I had been blind for two or three years. Blind? 
repeated Margaret. Stone blind. I discovered it by suddenly seeing, by seeing that I had loved you all the while, Margaret. Are you offended? No, said Margaret slowly. She was a moment finding her voice to say it. I ought I to be offended? Not if you are not, said Richard. Then I am not. I, I've made little discoveries myself, murmured Margaret, going into full mourning with her eyelashes. But it was only for an instant. She refused to take her happiness shyly or insincerely. It was something too sacred. She was a trifle appalled by it, if the truth must be told. If Richard had scattered his love-making through the month of her convalescence, or if he had made his avowal in a different mood, perhaps Margaret might have met him with some natural coquetry. But Richard's tone and manner had been such as to suppress any instinct of the kind. His declaration, moreover, had amazed her. Margaret's own feelings had been more or less plain to her that last month, and she had diligently disciplined herself to accept Richard's friendship, since it seemed all he had to give. Indeed, it had seemed at times as if he had not even that. When Margaret lifted her eyes to him, a second after her confession, they were full of a sweet seriousness, and she had no thought of withdrawing the hands which Richard had taken and was holding lightly, that she might withdraw them if she willed. She felt no impulse to do so, though as Margaret looked up, she saw her father standing a few paces behind Richard. With an occult sense of another presence in the room, Richard turned at the same instant. Mr. Slocum had advanced two steps into the apartment, and had been brought to a dead halt by the surprising tableau in the embrasure of the window. He stood motionless, with an account-book under his arm, while a dozen expressions chased each other over his countenance. "'Mr. Slocum,' said Richard, who saw that only one course lay open to him, "'I love Margaret, and I have been telling her.' At that the flitting shadows on Mr. Slocum's face settled into one grave look. He did not reply immediately, but let his glance wander from Margaret to Richard, and back again to Margaret, slowly digesting the fact. It was evident he had not relished it. Meanwhile the girl had risen from the chair, and was moving towards her father. "'That strikes me as very extraordinary,' he said at last. "'You have never given any intimation that such a feeling existed. How long has this been going on?' "'I have always been fond of Margaret, sir, but I was not aware of the strength of the attachment until the time of her illness, when I—that is, we—came near to losing her.' "'And you, Margaret?' As Mr. Slocum spoke, he instinctively put one arm around Margaret, who had crept closely to his side." "'I don't know when I began to love Richard,' said Margaret simply. "'You don't know?' "'Perhaps it was while I was ill. Perhaps it was long before that. Maybe my liking for him commenced as far back as the time he made the cast of my hand. How can I tell, Papa? I don't know.' "'There appears to be an amazing diffusion of ignorance here.' Margaret bit her lip and kept still. Her father was taking it a great deal more seriously than she had expected.' A long, awkward silence ensued. Richard broke it at last by remarking uneasily, "'Nothing has ever been, or was to be concealed from you. Before going to sleep tonight, Margaret would have told you all I've said to her. You should have consulted with me before saying anything.' "'I intended to do so, but my words got away from me. I hope you will overlook it, sir, and not oppose my loving Margaret, though I see as plainly as you do that I am not worthy of her.' "'I have not said that.' I base my disapproval on entirely different ground. Margaret is too young. 
a girl of seventeen or eighteen. Nineteen, said Margaret parenthetically. Of nineteen, then, has no business to bother her head with such matters. Only yesterday she was a child. Richard glanced across at Margaret, and endeavored to recall her as she impressed him that first afternoon, when she knocked defiantly at the workshop door to inquire if he wanted any pans and pails, but he was totally unable to reconstruct that crude little figure with the glossy black head, all eyes and beak, like a young hawk's. "'My objection is impersonal,' continued Mr. Slocum. "'I object to the idea. I wish this had not happened. I might not have disliked it years hence. I don't say, but I dislike it now.' Richard's face brightened. "'It will be years hence in a few years.' Mr. Slocum replied with a slow, grave smile. "'I am not going to be unreasonable in a matter where I find Margaret's happiness concerned. And yours, Richard. I care for that, too. But I'll have no entanglements. You and she are to be good friends, and nothing beyond. I prefer that Margaret should not come to the studio so often. You shall see her whenever you like at our fireside, of an evening. I don't think the condition's hard.' Mr. Slocum had dictated terms, but it was virtually a surrender. Margaret listened to him with her cheek resting against his arm, and a warm light nestled down deep under her eyelids. Mr. Slocum drew a half-pathetic sigh. "'I presume I have not done wisely. Everyone bullies me. The Marble Workers' Association ruins my yard for me, and now my daughter is taken off my hands. By the way, Richard,' he said, interrupting himself brusquely, and with an air of dismissing the subject, "'I forgot what I came for. I am thinking over Torini's case.' and have concluded that you had better make up his account and discharge him. "'Certainly, sir,' replied Richard, with a shadow of dissent in his manner, "'if you wish it. He causes a great deal of trouble in the yard.' "'I am afraid he does. Such a clean workman, when he's sober.' "'But he is never sober.' "'He has been in a bad way lately, I admit.' "'His example demoralizes the men. I can see it day by day.' "'I wish he were not so necessary at this moment,' observed Richard. I don't know who else could be trusted with the frez for the soldier's monument. I'd like to keep him on a week or ten days longer. Suppose I have a plain talk with Torini. Surely we have enough good hands to stand the loss of one. For a special kind of work there is nobody in the yard like Torini. That is one reason why I want to hold on to him for a while, and there are other reasons. Such as what? Well, I think it would not be wholly politic to break with him just now. Why not now as well as any time? He has lately been elected secretary of the association. What of that? He has a great deal of influence there. If we put him out of the works, it seems to me he would lose his importance, if he really has any to speak of. You are mistaken if you doubt it. His position gives him a chance to do much mischief, and he would avail himself of it very adroitly, if he had a personal grievance. I believe you are actually afraid of the fellow. Richard smiled. No, I am not afraid of him, but I don't underrate him. The men look up to Torini as a sort of leader. He's an effective speaker, and knows very well how to fan a dissatisfaction. Either he or some other disturbing element has recently been at work among the men. There's considerable grumbling in the yard. They are always grumbling, aren't they? Most always, but this is more serious than usual. There appears to be a general stir among the trades in the village. I don't understand it clearly. The marble workers have been holding secret meetings. They mean business, you think? They mean increased wages, perhaps. But we are now paying from five to ten percent more than any trade in the place. What are they after? So far as I can gather, sir, the finishers and the slab sores want an advance. I don't know how much. 
Then there's some talk about having the yard closed an hour earlier on Saturdays. All this is merely rumor, but I am sure there is something in it. Confound the whole lot! If we can't discharge a drunken hand without raising the pay of all the rest, we had better turn over the entire business to the association. But do as you like, Richard. You see how I am bullied, Margaret? He runs everything. Come, dear. And Mr. Slocum quitted the workshop, taking Margaret with him. Richard remained standing a while by the table, in a deep study, with his eyes fixed on the floor. He thought of his early days in the sepulchral house in Welch's Court, of his wanderings abroad, his long years of toil since then, and this sudden blissful love that had come to him, and Mr. Slocum's generosity. Then he thought of Torini, and went down into the yard gently to admonish the man, for Richard's heart that hour was full of kindness for all the world. End of chapter 10